This is the Waters and Harvey Show. I'm Darren Waters. And I'm Marcus Harvey. A few weeks ago, we spoke with Dr. Dwight Mullen and Mr. Patrick Honet about the collection and use of data. We're going to follow up that conversation today with Mr. Conant and his colleague, Mr. Jesse Michael. Join us as we explore the ways that data can be used for positive social change. We'll be back in a moment. Again, this is the Waters and Harvey Show. I'm Darren Waters. So glad to have you all join us again in the audience and glad to be in the studio with my brother, Dr. Marcus Harvey. Marcus, here we are again. How yes, are you? It's good to be here. I, feel like it's, I think it's been a while, so it's nice to be back it, in the it, studio. It is. Yeah. It is. So we're here to talk about data again. Uh, that was a good conversation with Dr. Mullen the last time, that follow-up conversation. We've had a few conversations with Dr. Mullen about his work yeah. around the state of Black Asheville, but we talked about this whole idea of big data. Data, you hear a lot about it in the news how people are using data. Brother, what's going on in your mind when you think about this topic yeah, of big I, data? I think big data raises a lot of issues. And I'm, I'm reminded of some scholarship, some research conducted by Kenneth Hema and Maria Bottas on the so-called digital divide, which mm-hmm. has to do with this notion of the information haves and the information have-nots. Mm-hmm. And um, in, a, in, a, um, in a study done, I believe in 2010, it was revealed that around uh, 68% of whites had broadband internet access as opposed mm-hmm. to forty nine percent of blacks, and I think that uh, raises issues about about access to mm-hmm. big data. Um, and and there are even some suggestions in their scholarship that is uh, the work of uh, of Hema and Bodice that this gap um, correlates to. Uh, to, to economic disparities. And right. so it's a really important, I think, topic to consider. You know, Marcus, have always been, you know, I think gaps between mm-hmm. knowledge, people, uh, the use yeah. of knowledge. We know, you know, as a historian, I look at this, um, you know, how people were systematically kept away from getting knowledge. Mm-hmm. And we know that knowledge is power. When I think about this whole issue, the conversations and the controversies around uh, big data and how yeah. data is used, you know, we hear in the news conversations about Facebook and how Facebook is collecting data and using data. We heard a lot about that in the last election. You think about Google, all of these large tech companies and how they're using it. I'm in these conversations all the time, especially at the university, as we talk about you know, data on students. In some of these conversations, not so much at the university, but in other conversations I'm hearing, it gets a little, uh, you know, a little disturbing because data can be used to kind of control and manipulate people. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And I think it it really challenges the, the old adage or the old dictum that knowledge is power. Right. I mm-hmm. think in, in our era. Um, uh, information is power mm-hmm. <laughs> um, in, in almost the same way that knowledge is power. And, it, and again, it raises these issues of access. It raises issues of who's compiling the data, by what means, by what instruments, how is access to this information mediated, if at all. Um, and so, but you're right. I mean, it is disturbing in the sense that this data mm-hmm. can be used for a whole host of purposes, um, not all of which are ethical. <laughs> right. So here's one of you, Marcus, one of these new <laughs> words that I hear a lot, too, is the word woke, that people uh, are woke, uh, you know, that um, aware. And, you know, as I think as especially humanists working mm-hmm. in the field of the humanities, you and I talk a lot mm-hmm. about people being aware, self-aware, yeah. because I think sometimes we just kind of walk through our lives without 
without really thinking about yeah. what it is that we do, why we do it. And people are studying those patterns mm. and they use that, you know, that information to, um, and like I said earlier, to kind of determine how people are going to behave. We see this with our elections and how elections mm. are uh, kind of analyzed. And so this is something going into 2020 as we think about the next census year for oh, the yeah. United States and all that will come out of that. I think it's something for us to be thinking about. Yeah, and for me, someone whose research focuses on how knowledge is produced, um, it's really interesting to me to think about how this superabundance of data um, is processed and then how how that processing translates, if at all, into knowledge that results in heightened awareness around important social issues. So yeah. this is a, a key thing yeah. to discuss, think about I think. who is processing. There you too. go. There so you go. There, there are a number of questions, I think, that a conversation about big data, how data is used, a number of questions that this raises. One is what impact does it have on our society? I mean, we need to be thinking about, I, again, you know, uh, I could go to my being a, a, a student of Alexis de Tocqueville and Americans and how he was critical of Americans and not being really well uh, uh Aware, socially aware, and not thinking about it. We live in a present moment, not thinking so much about how it impacts the future, uh, how to pass this impact at where we are now. So what will the impact on our society be from big data? Um, what does the collection of data mean for the health of our democracy? I think that is a big one. There are a number of people who are talking about that. Um, in that last conversation, I want to use this quote again. We quoted uh, Carly F uh, Fiorina who said she was one of the presidential candidates on the Republican side in the yeah. last round. As we remember, I think that she was president of Hewitt, Hewitt Packard That's at right. one point. Um, she said the goal is to turn data into information and information into insight. But again, you raised a point about access, access to information. Yeah, and you know, I, I think it's very easy. You know, we're, we're, we're always swimming in data. Uh, we're always surrounded by it. And as such, I think it's very easy to just forget about that. Mm -hmm. And forget about the fact that every day we're bathing in it. And, no and there's a way in which it's, it's sort of easier in some sense to right. just not think about <laughs> how our how our contemporary modern lives are in many ways defined by data. So I think Fiorina's point is, is actually is pertinent. Here. Right. Yeah. It really is. So Marcus and I are going to step out and we're going to come back and we're going to talk about these issues in our conversation with Patrick and with Jesse. And so stay tuned and we'll be back in just a moment. Again, this is the Waters and Harvest Show. This is Darren Waters. So glad that you all are staying with us. So glad to be here, coming from the studios here at Blue Ridge Public Radio in Asheville, North Carolina. And this is a great conversation about data and how data is used, the collection of data. What impact will it have on our society? What impact does it have on the health of our democracy? We're glad to have in the studio with us again, back with us again, uh, Patrick Conant, um, who was at one point a student of Dr. Mullins, right? Mm -hmm. You heard us talk about Dr. Dwight. Mullen just a few minutes ago. We're glad to have Patrick back with us. He was here in a previous show with Dr. Mullen as they talked about some of the work that they've been doing together. And we also have uh, Jesse Michael, who is one of Patrick's colleagues and has worked closely with Dr. Mullen as well. And we're glad to have them both here. We're going to let them talk a little bit about their background and introduce them. But Marcus and I are so glad that you all could join us in the studio today. Yeah, welcome, Patrick, Mike, and Jesse. Thank, Thank you. you. Yeah, so tell us a little bit, you know, 
uh, Patrick, uh, Jesse, whoever wants to go first, just tell us a little bit about your background. Okay. Um, so Jesse and I co-own a business called PRC Applications. Uh, my background is in computer science. Jesse's background is in uh, design. Mm -hmm. And we work together basically building websites. And what we're here today to talk about more is our work uh, around civic technology and open data. Uh, a lot of work that we've done with a local group called Code for Asheville. Okay. okay. Yeah, and, and Michael, uh, a bit about yourself, Jesse. Yeah, yeah. Mm -hmm. uh, I came from UNC Asheville, Lake Patrick. Um, I, you know, we started our business in 2013. Uh, Patrick quickly got into uh, the field of civic technology, um, which I found very fascinating as well. And I, I kind of followed his lead on that. And the rest has been history. We've been working in this field for about six years now. So it's yeah. been very exciting. It's so interesting to hear you all talk about coming from a computer science, having a computer science background, majoring mm -hmm. in that. And, and uh, we could, this conversation could go in a completely different direction now as I think about that. And given, knowing that UNC Asheville is a uh, an institution that focuses so much on the liberal arts. Mm -hmm. I'm interested in hearing you all talk about how the liberal arts may have mm -hmm. informed the work that you that you're doing. Um, you want to talk a yeah, little bit about that? Absolutely. It's something we actually talk about quite a bit. Uh, because prior to attending UNC Asheville, I actually was in an, an engineering program at the University of Southern California, so very tech-heavy school. Mm -hmm. And coming to a liberal arts school, a lot of people said, why would you do that mm -hmm. to do computer science? And, you know, there were certain times when I said, why am I doing this? But now, you know, owning a business, doing work with government, all of those soft skills, that breadth of knowledge that you get from a liberal arts education has proved uh, just as are even more important than the technical skills. Yeah, and I'm not sure that you even make the connection between uh, social justice access and um, you know science, computer science, without the sort of liberal arts framework. Um, but I, I think it was you, Patrick, who mentioned this term civic technology a moment ago. Right. Uh, this thing, this, this is a very, very intriguing concept to me. Could you speak a little bit on that concept? What does it mean? Um, how do you use it in your work? Um, etc. Right. Yeah. So civic technology is a relatively new idea. Mm -hmm. uh, and it's really about using technology as a tool to improve the interactions between citizens and government. And it's closely related to your discussions about data. A uh, related concept is called open data, which is where government and public entities are making more information available for the public so that anyone can access that information. And that's really important because up to this point, we would typically see, you know, the analysis from government of the job they're doing. And with open data, it really opens it up so anyone can pull that information with some technical skills, process it, and mm -hmm. possibly, you know, reveal a completely different set of conclusions. Yeah. But it seems to me, and Jesse, you can speak to this too, that you know just having access is not all that matters here you know trying being able to un do people find it hard to understand the information mm -hmm. that they're accessing mm -hmm. does that make sense yes yeah. and i think people also have a hard time understanding how much information they're creating on mm -hmm. a daily basis um i think dr harvey you said we're bathing in information <laughs> we're also you know we're creating the bath you know we are also uh, creating a huge amount of data so a, a huge focus of civic technology is the responsible um 
usage, processing, ownership of the data. Um, and that would be, you know, kind of public interest technology. There's an entire field and, and there are professionals who are advising, you know, members of Congress, mm -hmm. um, politicians on how to make responsible policy out of what is really a kind of a, a, a new frontier for everyone. So mm -hmm. it's interesting because, I'm, you know, I, it makes me think of the term information overload. Yeah. You know, it's, it's like it's coming at you constantly. So do you find that people when you're talking to people that people do feel a sense of being overwhelmed by so much information and how do you and how do you handle that yeah and, and along with that I'm, I'm also thinking about um, and I don't want to sound conspiratorial here but there's a long history of of, of our government um, not being completely transparent <laughs> right when it comes to information in certain areas and I'm just curious if that at all has if that if that continues to pose any challenge at all to the work of civic technologists mm -hmm. uh, like yourself yeah yeah I mean mm -hmm. absolutely I think we went from an era where none of this data was available to the public mm -hmm. to now everything's out there but that doesn't mean it's useful or informative uh, so and that's where I think civic technology steps in is to fill some of the gaps okay. uh, some of the tools we've built are around taking the kind of fire hose of data that the government is putting out and putting it into a format that people can actually use. Okay. Mm -hmm. So you have, so you guys on a daily basis have a lot coming at you on a daily basis, mm -hmm. I would imagine. Yes. Yeah. Yes. So it, you know, this is not, you know, what can you can you describe that process? You know, how you go does that make sense? How you go about doing that because you know, I don't want to use the the term filtering in information <laughs> because that gets into okay, well, what is not getting through those filters? Yeah. But um you're trying to be as transparent as you possibly can be. So how does that process look as you're dealing with that information? I think um this hits on a really good point because um the first question, you know, with all of the information that comes to us, what do we prioritize? And I think that the starting point really has to be, especially when you're talking about, um, you know, the public interest, public business, um, finding community groups, finding advocates in the community who will help you identify um, what the important information is and what can be used to potentially impact policy change. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Now, now, this issue of big data or uh, civic technology seems to me is 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 global in scope um, if not one day interstellar <laughs> in scope so my question is what what is the specific connection to Asheville and West North Carolina um how how was this this uh, relatively fledgling area of, of technology um, at work right locally mm -hmm. Well, I would say Asheville, despite our our position as a relatively small city, has always been a leader in civic technology, kind of surprisingly to a lot of people. Mm -hmm. But uh, mm. the civic technology movement was led, at least from uh, my perspective, by Code for America from San Francisco. And they started creating a process for volunteer groups to form in cities all across the country. Mm. So, of course, they formed in you know New York, Chicago, the Bay Area. But a group formed in Asheville started by two employees of the IT department. And the group started that way and uh, coordinated with efforts within the city towards open data. So by combining those two kind of approaches, we were able to actually uh, build some tools here that people use. And despite our small size, we've, we've done quite a bit in the civic technology space. And, and 
And, and you mean UNC Asheville's IT department? No, it's oh, the, okay. the city okay. of Asheville. Oh, I was going to say, wow, yeah. that's really impressive. Yeah, it is, it is. So I, I'm wondering, Patrick and Jesse, as we think about this, have there been any resistors to this? Have you gotten pushback from anybody? And what has that looked like? Sure. Um, yeah, I mean, I think anytime you're um, asking someone to do something new or potentially, um, you know, change what they are used to doing for their job or, you know, what they're comfortable with, um, there's always going to be a little bit of pushback. And we've gotten, you know, pushback from a variety of different, um, you know, institutions, individuals. Um, but I think the, the, the main point, the main thing that you have to do to, I mean, kind of get what you're trying to do done is illustrate to them why it's important. Um, illustrate to them that this is about the responsible use of information. You're not trying, you're not out to get anyone, but you are trying to, um, you know, transparency is the, it is the, it's about building a baseline for you to identify um, a problem. And then that's the first step to fixing the problem. And that's what this is all about. Okay, so you know, we, in, in our opening segment, we talked a little bit about the impact on our democracy. So how is this, how is how do you all see this helping helping to strengthen our democracy? Well, I think really access to data is how we empower communities to turn that data into information. Mm -hmm. So without that first step of access, none of what is done in civic technology is even possible. Right. So from a data perspective, transparency is really important. Mm -hmm. um, and also th from a public records uh, perspective, that's one of the most powerful tools the public has to hold government accountable and to make government more transparent through direct action. Okay. And I wonder, Patrick, and, and even Jesse here, let's think about this, because we we talked a little bit about so much information coming at you and not it's not that it's it, that that's not the only issue that I think about is how fast it comes, you know, information that is moving quickly. And I, and here I'm thinking about an article I read in the Atlantic not too long ago and talking about how, you know, with the founding generation, with people like James Madison, the democracy seemed to are the country, the republic was its strength was on the fact that information was diffused across a large republic, a larger republic. So it didn't move as fast. It moved slower. And I think about that as an academic because I love the reflective life. Do you think that with the the, the amount of information that is coming so fast that it, it disrupts our ability to be thoughtful and reflective about what what it is that we're, we're seeing yeah, and, and, and kind of along with it as a as, as an as an added question um uh, jesse and patrick i'm wondering if um if this sort of new economy of information that we live within is really beyond our control ultimately i mean you know given that you know uh, you know it really is is not um, really possible to to, the, to to police the interweb um mm -hmm. comprehensively so anyway just thoughts about about that sure yeah. Um, I would say that, uh, to Dr. Waters' point, yes, if you let it, it can become very problematic. Um, and that's why there are 
um, you know, there are there are focuses, you know, educational focuses. Um, there's industries on, um, you know, how to operate in the modern day in terms of uh, policy and teaching people how to be uh, responsible with all of this information that is flying around. Um, it is completely changed, and it's changing very quickly even now. And it's changed, you know, so rapidly even in the past um, 10 years that I think anyone you talk to, whether you're talking about community organizers or politicians, um, you know, I think everyone's kind of, um, struggling in a way to, to catch up right now. And I don't think, I think we're kind of in it, in our nascency right here in terms of, um, you know, really getting a full grasp on, um, where things are going and, and how to be, you said the term policing, mm-hmm. um, how to really uh, establish what the rules should be. Mm-hmm. I don't think anybody really understands exactly what they should be, but I think it's going to come down to um, the same, you know, the same values that we have for any kind of information, right, right. you know, mm-hmm. um, things like uh, personally identifiable information, privacy, things like that are going to be a concern no matter um, where it's coming from, how fast it's coming at you, and how much there is. Right. So. It's amazing. You you guys are bringing up so many other issues because I heard, you know, a word that I heard you use, which I think was important, rules. You know, and who who's determining what those rules mm-hmm. are? How do we, you know, all agree on what those rules should be? Because mm-hmm. there's got to be some order in this, right? Because yes. chaos cannot just kind of just run <laughs> yes. rampant. Yeah. But I can see how, you know, this uh, it could be seen that way. Yeah. yeah. And, and another issue for me is is, uh, is is who controls the instruments that accumulate and propagate the information. That mm-hmm. to me seems to be a really po- uh, important political position. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I'm also wondering, um, uh, uh, Patrick and, and Jesse, uh, about specific projects going on in Asheville right now that have to do with uh, civic technology. So can you speak to, speak to that a little bit, mm-hmm. if you would? Yes. So uh, some of the specific examples that we've built locally, uh, w- one is called AVL Park that takes parking space data on those little signs outside of every garage and make, puts it on an app so you can uh, see where to park before you get there. So that's not terribly exciting, but that's a good use of public data. Yeah. The city put the feet out there, but you couldn't see it anywhere. So uh, we built a tool and the city followed up with their own to make that data useful. Uh, other things that are a little more interesting from my perspective. We built a project called AVL Crime that took the city's crime data and broke it down by neighborhood so you could see 10-year trends for any neighborhood in the city, uh, which honestly told slightly different stories than some of the analysis done by the city itself. Well, Patrick, I want to jump here so that we can get this in in this particular show because it's clear that we we need to have another conversation (laughs) um, about uh, about all that you all are involved in 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 this whole issue of data and big data. I've heard you all use another term, sunshine request, and then I think just recently there was sunshine week. Can you talk to us a little bit about what that term is, what does it mean, and what's involved? Sure. So Sunshine Request is uh, probably our most used civic technology project. Mm -hmm. It's built and maintained by our company uh, because it takes staff to actually run the site. Mm -hmm. So uh, we feel that public records are one of the most important tools that citizens can use to hold the government accountable. And Sunshine Request is a website that makes it easy for anyone to make a public records request. So we turn this really complex government process into a simple form, and we publish the Mm -hmm. results of every request on the site, including 
including the email correspondences that go back and forth to get the request fulfilled. Right. Yeah. So what we're trying to do is encourage people to make public records requests uh, and make right. it not intimidating, make it easy, and you can do it anonymously, which is important for some use cases. <laughs> so I'm getting the impression that you guys stay pretty busy. <laughs> yeah. So this this sounds like a, a company that's going to be around for a while. Oh, I mean, I come looking for a so. job. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and I think in some ways this is really revolutionary work that you all are doing. So I, I commend you on that. But how can people find out more? Um, what, what's the easiest way to learn more about the work that you two are doing for the for those who are listening? Mm-hmm. Yeah, so I would say uh, you can check out our company's website at prcapps.com. Okay. Uh, Sunshine Request is at sunshinerequest.com. Mm-hmm. And also, if you're interested in civic technology in general, I'd encourage you to check out Code for Asheville on Meetup or on their website. Okay. Mm-hmm. And we're gonna, we're, at some point, we're going to want to have you all back to, to continue kind of to follow the progress because I would like to dig deeper into how certain you know groups, especially communities, Marginal communities that have been historically marginalized are benefiting from the work that you're doing and how you're partnering with those communities because it's clear that you have a number of different partners. But we're going to save that part of the conversation for a later show if you all are willing to come back and join us again. Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. Well, we want to thank you all for coming in. Marcus and I want to take a minute just to step out and then we'll come back and just reflect on this conversation. Again, this has been the Waters and Harvey Show. Marcus, this was an interesting conversation. I, I was not, um, I, uh, I wasn't uh, aware of the fact that my mind was going to go in so many different directions <laughs> as I was listening to both J- Jesse and Patrick talk about this. Because yeah. being a humanist, I'm thinking, okay, you know, we need to talk about data, but it's not one of those things that I spend a lot of time doing. So, but I can't. I'm amazed at how this kind of piqued my interest. Yeah, me too. And and I really think that we're we're in an era or we're approaching an era where information is becoming kind of the new currency, mm-hmm. the new capital, the new the new locus of power, especially when you consider that as of what, 2011, only um, in the so-called global south, right. only 13% of, of, of Africans have access to broadband internet. Mm-hmm. I mean, what does that mean as far as, as far as access to this very valuable form of currency that we're right. faced with. So a lot of a lot of vexing issues that I think are orbiting this this conversation. Right. And yeah. I'm telling you how we face this because it has the the uh it, it stands to change the way we interact with each other, mm-hmm. to, to really change the way our com- local communities, our individual communities kind of function together. So there are a lot of questions that this, uh, that this raises, and, mm-hmm. but I think in, in a sense, in a positive way, you know, to broaden democracy for, some, for more people and strengthen it. So I think that, and the liberal arts are going to become very yeah. important in, yeah. in, in how, we, how we move forward with that. But that was a great conversation with Jesse and Pat. Patrick, and I look forward to having them back again. But Marcus and I want to take a moment to remind you that the Waters and Harvest Show is produced at Blue Ridge Public Radio in Asheville, North Carolina. You can listen to our podcast on BPR.org, on the BPR mobile app, and on iTunes and Google Play. Follow us and get in touch on Facebook and Twitter, and Marcus and I will be glad to join you all again next time. All right, take care.